All right. Welcome to the Leadership to Wealth podcast. On today's show, we have an employee and uh, labor relations expert, as well as a diversity expert. He will be talking about his life, sharing from what it was like growing up as a kid, everything from uh, not knowing who to take to prom to uh, crosses being burned and coming into uh, becoming a successful uh, business owner. Now, one of the things that we get into is what it was like for him to grow up in these difficult circumstances and how that really skewed life and what he's learned out of that. Guys, welcome with me today on the show, Jason Greer. Welcome to the Leadership to Wealth podcast. My guest today is uh, Jason Greer. Jason, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Neil, thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. So, Jason, I know that you you deal in the world of labor relations and diversity. And um, can you can you just give us a little bit of background on yourself and uh, and what you do? Yeah, no problem. So I am a former national uh, board agent with the National Labor Relations Board, which is just a great way of saying it. My wife laughs at me every time I say this. I'm a former federal agent. And here's why oh. she laughs at me. She's a forensic scientist. So when I say that I am a former federal agent, she's like, okay, did you carry a gun? Did you work for the TEA? Did you work for the CIA? And I'm like, no, I put up signs and I allowed people to vote in secret ballot elections as to whether or not employees wanted to join the labor union. Right? right. So in my mind, it's a big deal to the real federal agents. <laughs> I don't think it's as big of a deal. Um, but essentially, I was a board agent for probably about maybe uh, two, three years and got a wonderful opportunity to transition into the world of consulting uh, around labor relations uh, by a gentleman who was working out of Las Vegas, went to go work for his organization for close to about two years and then segued off to my own company called and I aptly named it Greer Consulting Inc. Um, and honestly, Neil, I thought in opening up my own shop, my biggest hope was maybe to get one or two cases a year you know, enough to pay my house note, enough to pay the car note, and maybe to take, you know, um, my kids out for to Disneyland, maybe once a year. Yeah. I had no idea that we were going to grow from that ideal of what I was going to create in a business to, I just found out three months ago that we're in the top 5% of labor and employment relation consultants in the country. So it's just been this, this incredible organic rise of really nothing more than a lot of work, some successes, a lot of failure, um, some retooling, and just an insatiable grind to be the best. Wow, that's that's amazing. Thank uh, you. So, so I should I should say this first of all. I, um, you, you know, here in Canada, I have worked for the federal government as well, and <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, and um, I I've even done I've done time in um, in um, human resources sure. and uh, staff relations and uh, dealing with grievances. So I'm really interested to hear. Uh, now on that side, I I typically had. Uh, had to support management, right? And so sure. you're here, you really, and you're going to be able to talk about uh, the labor relations on the other side. So I'm excited to hear about that. Mm -hmm. But the question that I've gotten, and mm -hmm. uh, many times, and I'm going to ask you is, who in the world leaves a government job? Why would you leave a federal <laughs> job? Brother, if I were in my 30s, I would not have left a government job. If I were in my right. 40s, I wouldn't have left a government job because who leaves that stability? Who, you know, that stability, the healthcare benefits. Uh, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're the two crazies here, right? We're yeah, the two crazies yeah. here. That's right. We, we know where this is going to go right from the start. It, All right. Exactly. But being in my 20s, I didn't care anything about benefits because at the time I thought I was, I was invincible. And, you know, it's generally why I tell people. Um, because I spend a lot of time speaking to high school students, college students, graduate students. And um, what I say to them is pretty simple. When you go to college, don't go to college thinking in terms of, I just want to get a job. I get that you're going to get a job, hopefully, right? Go to college to learn how to think, to learn how to expand, to learn how, look, I don't care if you're in college for four years. So I have a bachelor's degree from Valparaiso University, a master's degree from Washington University and another master's degree from the University of Illinois. And I will tell you, 
that I was sort of the butt of a lot of jokes for my family and not my parents, but more so my extended family, my cousins, you know, uncles, aunts, those kinds of things. And they were always like, when is Jason going to get out of school? When's he going to go to work? But what they didn't understand was that process, it was not just about getting an education. That process was my figuring out myself, my figuring out what I wanted, my figuring out what I needed. But more importantly, every single day I was working on a skill set and had no idea that I was working on a skill set. Right. Yeah. I'm, you know, the hardest, the hardest transition for me going from school to sort of quote unquote normal life was the fact that I didn't have a syllabus to guide me every single day. Yeah. Right. And I didn't realize that, you know, again, it's the things that you take for granted. And I'll say this again to young folks is don't take for granted the people that you're surrounded by. Whether you like them or you dislike them, the thing that you all have in common is that you are in school learning. And life for me got very lonely after I left college, after I left graduate school, because now all of a sudden I wasn't surrounded by the best and the brightest. But what I was able to take was a special set of skills. In my case, I am not the guy that you will ever call to balance your books. I'm terrible at math, terrible at it, right? It's probably why I would never be a great human resources manager, okay? <laughs> Got it. But what I did learn was how to get along with people. What I did learn was how to counsel people and more specifically, how to listen critically. Because everyone's telling you a story in some form or fashion, but it's up to you to really hone in on what they're saying, right? And one of the things my mentor shared with me, um, you know, after I transitioned to the world of consulting was there's always two sides of the truth or three sides of the truth, rather. There's your truth. There's the other person's truth. And somewhere in the middle is the actual truth, mm, Yeah. right? So, um, you know, that's just a long-winded way of saying that, man. I've been so fortunate because even when I failed and I have failed tremendously, and we'll talk about them a little bit. I have failed tremendously. It was the skill sets that I picked up when I was younger that actually helped me to get through the difficult periods. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that we're now able to transition to this other side where my company's insanely successful. I've seen things and done things that I didn't think I would ever be able to do, mm -hmm. but it's also given me a very, I don't care how high things are. I don't care how low things are. I exist sort of in this middle, right? Where I'm just even, right. where I celebrate the success, but I don't get overwhelmed by the success. Yeah. I acknowledge the failure, but I don't get overwhelmed by the failure. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. There's, there's a lot that you just shared there. One of the things that, that you said early on that I, that I caught, and I'm wondering if you can expound on this, it yeah. sounded like, you, while you were in school, you were almost trying to discover yourself and you stumbled upon these skill sets that you could utilize for life and, and you're obviously utilizing right now. It, it sounds like you were, hey, I'm going in this direction, but I'm not actually sure what I'm doing here. Um, I'm, sure. I'm learning and that kind of stuff. But, and then you realized, oh my goodness, I've got this huge skill set. Is that kind of how it it occurred or it happened? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great, that's a great point, Neil is, you know, I don't know how things are in Canada. I've officially, I've been in Canada for one day in my life and that was best me, day of your life, best day of my life, me and eight buddies <laughs> going over to Canada and I'm not going to go into any details, right. <laughs> but best yeah. day, best day of my life, right. In undergrad. Yeah, right. But I will, I will tell you, Neil, that I am, my life is sort of the positive side of racism, right? And okay. let me explain what I mean by that. Yeah. So grew up in an all-white environment where I was the only, you know, black kid in school. Um, well, actually, there's three of us in the Catholic school that I attended. And then one family moved away. So there's only two of us, right? Yeah. But I was the only black kid in my, my immediate classroom. Yeah. And... I learned early on that I was different, not because I went out of my way to be different, but because I was treated differently. Mm -hmm. I was treated differently by the neighborhood kids. I was treated differently by the teachers. And when I say differently, I'm not saying that every day I showed up, you know, 
like it was a coming to America moment, <laughs> you know, the, like I'm Eddie Murphy and they're throwing roses, right? <laughs> like I'm the King of Zamunda, right? It wasn't- Hello, America! It, exactly, exactly. It was not like that. It was more yeah. along the case of, there were some days I was just happy that somebody said hello to me, right? Yeah. Like that made my day if somebody acknowledged me. It made my day if a teacher acknowledged me. But I was the kid, uh, myself and three other kids were the kids who were put in the special education courses. Right. Or the Catholic version of special education, which is group three. So I'm watching all of this attention be lavished upon my classmates. I'm testing in the top 4% in the nation, you know, during the standardized test that we had every year. Yet I couldn't figure out why I was being treated like I was not capable. Right. But that had been my experience. And so fast forward, I'm 17 years old. My father was the first black principal in um, this area called Dubuque, Iowa. And we didn't know that we were the first family to come to Dubuque under the constructive integration plan, whereby they were gonna bring 100 black families into Dubuque over the course of 10 years. Um, the challenge is that anytime you try to force integration on a population that's 99.9% .9 white, generationally speaking, um, there's going to be some blowback. And in our particular case, the blowback was the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, um, and other white supremacist organizations came into Dubuque and they burned crosses in protest of our family. Wow. So I'm 17 years old, still trying to figure out who I'm going to take to homecoming, right? Who I'm going to take to prom. And I'm sitting here witnessing these burning crosses in protest of us and they didn't even know us, right? Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm bringing all those things up because by the time I got to school, by the time I got to undergrad, my mind was on something far different than a lot of my classmates were. For them, it was, I just want to get through these four years. And I'm not, please understand, I'm not, you know, trying to belittle anything my classmates were going through. Right. I just know that they weren't going through what I was going through. Right. Right. So when I say that I'm the positive side of racism, I had to learn very quickly how to survive in an environment that oftentimes did not have a place for me, right? I had to understand how to win friends and influence enemies. When I say win friends, I wasn't coming from the perspective of, I want you to like me. It was more from the perspective of, I just don't wanna get my butt beat while I'm walking home from school, right? When I say win friends, it was, I just want my teachers to think of me as they think of the other students. So what do I have to do to survive in this? And I learned this very acute sense of how to navigate the silence in addition to how to think along the lines of how other people are thinking, which nowadays 47 being in the field that I'm in gives me a discernible advantage because I spend more time thinking in terms of the perspective of other people than they do thinking in the perspective of me which gives me the advantage because anytime I go into a social setting, anytime I go to a business setting, chances are I'm already four steps ahead of you because I've had to be four steps ahead of you because there was survival when I was a child. Right. Right. And I've, I've taken that sense of survival and made it into a discernible skill. That's all she actually made me money. You know, and, and we could end the podcast right now. Um, <laughs> whoo. Um, Wow, you, it was almost like you guys were an invasive species. Yes. You know, coming into Dubuque. And, yes. uh, and people are trying to, well, wait, what are you going to do? Where, what's going on? Or how are you going to influence this? Are you going to take away from us? And, um, and so the automatic, so the reaction was, um, you know, one of, I, I suppose, uncertainty and maybe even fear and obviously yeah. even flat out rejection. Yes. Um, you know, uh, and, and coming from a time when there was still a lot of uncertainty between races at the time, right? There was still so much racism at the time. Interestingly, I also uh, grew up in a Catholic school and where i was i'm, I'm so sorry i'm so sorry <laughs> where where you know that story is very familiar to me um yeah. i will say that um it was not at the level 
that you experienced. There were no burning crosses. There were there was the name calling, the you know, and and worrying about being beaten up, that that kind of stuff as well. Sure. Um, and uh, but something that came out of that for me that I, I didn't realize till I was older um, was there was an uncomfortability with being in my own skin. Mm, brother, preach, yes. Right? And yes. Um, and I didn't, and I would even meet, uh, you know, others from, you know, I'm originally from India. I'd meet other people that uh, had come over later on in life. Right. And they didn't even seem to have the same perspective that, that I had, because of course they'd grown up with all other people of their own culture, right? Yes. Um, yes. And and uh, their own skin tone, and so there was just a. I note it, it was odd, but I thought, wow, they they don't feel that way. Yes, they they realize that they're different, but they don't feel that way. And um, you, you know, is there anything you can kind of say about that uncomfortability in your own skin? Yeah. I mean, it, it must have been even more pronounced when you've got people burning crosses and and the like. No, a, a lot, actually, because I think that you and I are saying something very similar is you're almost an alien wherever you go. When you, you know, and I'll speak to my my situation. You tell me if this resonates with you. I'm around. I was around white people who I had grown up with. Many of them I consider to be friends and many of them consider me to be friends. But I'm not quite, I'm not, I'm too black for the white people, right? And too, you know, <laughs> I'm too black for the white people and too white for the black people. So it's kind of like, okay, where do I fit? And so then as a result, you end up sort of code switching, right? Mm. And when I say you code switch, you talk one way around white people and then you talk another way around black people, but you don't read authentic to either group. Right. So then, yeah. <laughs> does that does that resonate? Yeah. With you? Oh my. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A absolutely. Because, interestingly, I you learn to assimilate, right? You, yes. you learn to fit in, and um, and then I remember as I when I would meet people of my own country, uh, my own culture, I they would be like, "Oh, what language do you speak?" And I'd be like, "English." Mm -hmm. Like, wait. You don't, you don't know your, <laughs> yes, your mother tongue. No. So I didn't fit into that group either. Right. And it, it wasn't until I was in my later teens that then all of a sudden it, uh, it, I started becoming cool to some degree, but, but even that it was interesting. I still didn't become cool to East Indians. At that point, I actually started fitting in more with the West Indians and blacks. Now there was a lot of here in Canada, there was a lot of changes going on at that point in time where we had gone through uh, a period of white supremacy and, and in retaliation, we started creating our own gangs. We started creating our own groups. And, um, and then that became, that was a whole nother issue. And there's a whole aspect of gang life that I could, I could talk about, but, um, sure. but you know, that's your, uh, your, what you're saying is, you know, you've just hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I'm very comfortable with being, there are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. I'm yes. very, I'm very comfortable with being uncomfortable because mm -hmm. I've never really fit in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it, but that, that's also, it, and I go right back to what I typically say to young folks is, mm -hmm man, your superpower, because this is the day and age of Marvel movies, DC movies, you know, superheroes, yeah. you know, superheroes of every make and model, right? What I generally say to people is, I wish that I could fly like Superman. And I wish that I had the, you know, ability of Aquaman to swim because I can't swim. But my past gives me a superpower that no one else can touch. Right. And that's what I generally say to people is right. to young folks, especially is they're growing up in a day and age in which they have access to more something than I ever had. Yes. Yeah. My, my life outside of my suburb was an encyclopedia, a set of encyclopedias. And those were only fresh 
refreshed annually. And that's only if my parents felt like paying for it, right? I didn't have the internet. There was nobody who looked like me other than some, you know, stereotypical characters on television, right? right. Blessedly, I had a very, I have a very strong father. Blessedly, I have a very strong right. mother who could provide that moral support, who could provide that sort of aspirational support for me in terms of what I want to be. But outside of my house, there was nobody. These days, if you want a hero, just go online and you can find somebody who might fit what you are going through. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can Run I ask you an, anything? Can I ask you an interesting question around that? Yeah. In in finding yourself in that place where you are mm -hmm. you are also uncomfortable in your own skin. You're looking around. Where do I fit? And you were talking about trying to get a date for the prom. <laughs> yes. When you're not sure of who you are in and of yourself, when you look in the mirror, how do you how do you date? How do you how do you create relationships with women, and why are they with me? And it was is there any of that stuff that you yeah, say a hundred percent? Not very well. How about yeah. <laughs> you know? It's it's funny. I was. Um, in, I, I don't know about um, Canadian high schools, but in, uh, you know, American high schools, the big thing is um, homecoming. So we have homecoming, we have prom, right? Yeah. So I was homecoming king. And I promise you, I'm standing there looking around and wearing this crown on my head. And I cannot figure out how in the hell this happened. Right? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. just four, four years before that, you know, we, you were talking about um, uh, not knowing how to fit in. Yeah. You know, my freshman year in high school, again, since I'd never been around Black people other than my cousins, other than my family, and I had worn uniforms for, you know, right. eight years of Catholic, of Catholic, seven, seven or eight years, I can't remember, of Catholic grade school. Mm -hmm. My ideal role model was Don Johnson from Miami Vice back in the 80s. So, you know, I, I show up to school wearing what I think is cool because that's what Don Johnson wears. Understand that I think this is 88, 1988. So I don't know if Miami Vice was still playing at that time, yeah. but I walk in and everybody's speaking this secret language, but no one's cued, cued me in as to what it is. And I yeah. sounded different. I looked different. I acted different. So fast forward to four years later, I'm the homecoming king. And I can't figure, I'm still trying to figure out the social dynamics. So as it pertains to dating, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't remember, you know, I had maybe three or four girlfriends and I think they were more successful at the relationship than I was mm -hmm. because I felt like this awkward kid. Yeah. I just happened to be a good athlete. Yeah. You know, fast forward to college. I still feel like this awkward kid fast forward to age 47. And I'm now realizing, man, the things that I went through, marked me in one way in terms of being successful, but hurt me in another way in terms of stunning my development. Yeah. Right. And what I generally tell people is that there's this element of PTSD that we all experience. Yeah. For me, it happens to be racial PTSD because there are these things that are still ping in my mind, still ping in my heart that I don't know are there until I get triggered. My yeah. triggering is I'm still very calm. So it's not like to your listeners, it's not like I go burn buildings and all that stuff, right? When something triggers me, I need, I need, right, exactly. I need to say that. But um, if I could go back in time, if I could go back in time, Neil, the only thing that I would change is I would have gotten counseling sooner. Mm. I would have sat down and talked to somebody consistently um as opposed to just you know being the typical man in terms of how we're socialized and just you suck it up and you keep moving on right mm -hmm. because then you fast forward to 47 and you look at your life and for all intent purposes i'm very very successful but i will say that there are some pains that i should have been able to let go a long time ago that were not my wounds to carry right does that make sense yes it absolutely makes sense. Wow, I <laughs> you're painting uh, you're painting my life hmm. um, to a great degree. And uh, what I can share is that 
those wounds. I, I don't carry those wounds anymore. I, I decided to stop drinking the poison that, yes. uh, <laughs> right. That I, I was drinking for a long time. And, um, and I would say the, the thing that really changed that was, um, how it ended up getting in the way of my relationship with my wife. Hmm. And, and that actually became the trigger to realize that I'm still carrying all of this stuff and, and has really marked a change. I actually feel like I'm hitting my stride now, um, over the last, over the last number of years, uh, I would say the last five years, I feel like I'm hitting my stride and it's like, Oh, I don't need to carry these things anymore. Yes. And, um, we actually had a class reunion with my grade school friends and it's interesting because none of them remember it the way that I remember it. That's right? it. Every single time. Yes. Right. And yes. none of them, none of them remember any of the comments, any of the, you, you know, uh, not wanting to be my friend not getting, not inviting me to the birthday parties. I don't remember any of that. Right. And, and I realized, and here's a funny story that I would share. I used to, so my dad's an alcoholic and, um, and so just being at home was a scary thing. He would be violent when he would drink. And so just being at home was a scary thing. Mm -hmm. But when I would go over to my relative's uh, cousin's house and I would be so excited because they would go be with the adults and I'd go play with the kids and there was safety in that. So for me, Absolutely. every time I went over there, it was a time to be free and safe and play and have fun. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so I was just excited to see them every time. Fast forward, we're adults and come to find out that they don't have the same relationship with me that I have with them. Yes. Be yes. Because, yes. Because I would, I have this deep kinship to them mm -hmm. for what they were for me, but for them, I was the cousin that came over and they had to share their toys with. I was the one that they had to make yes. space for. They had to share things with and all this. And it was like, oh, wow. I didn't realize that that connection wasn't the same. And I think you were kind of sharing about it a little bit earlier, just about how that changes when you walk into a room, right? Because you have that perspective. Yes. And uh, when I realized that they didn't have the same uh, experience that I had. When I see that with other people, with my schoolmates, they didn't have the same experience that I had. I'm like, oh, <laughs> so um, it maybe it's not all of those things. And maybe, maybe it was all those things, but none of those things are actually happening right now. Well, it, you hit it right on the head. When you were going to your cousins, not only were you excited about playing with your cousins, you were also escaping trauma. Yes. Even even yeah. if it was just for two hours, three hours, so that yeah. moment, that moment, at least in your brain and your mindset, is going to be rooted deeply, as yeah. opposed to your cousins, who, and I'm not saying that they didn't go through their own thing, but yeah. you were just another kid coming over that they're related yeah. to, right? Yeah. And it's you no, know, it's funny how you talked about like your grade school classmates when you get together with them, they don't remember certain things. Mm -hmm. Same thing. I wrote a book um, called Bias, Racism, in the Brain. And um, this happened as a result of, this is a development that came about um, my co-author, Phil Dixon, who's a very close friend of mine, is one of the foremost authorities in um, the neuroscience of leadership. And he's, uh, I think he wrote three books prior to our book. And so the George Floyd moment happens. He and I speak maybe one or two weeks later. And I asked the bigger question of what can we do about this, right? Because from, a, from the perspective of race, you can attach any other ism you want to it. But from the perspective of race, we've been talking about the same thing for centuries. The very thing that got Martin Luther King assassinated back in 1968, and we're still grappling with these same issues, right? Mm -hmm. So I threw out to him, what if we're looking at this from a whole different perspective that other people are not? Because it's, yeah. our, it's our fundamental belief that when we talk about racism, race, race is a social construct. It's a, no different than oh. if, Neil, if I, if I ask you to take out a dollar bill, right? Or whatever the currency might be. It's just a piece of paper, a piece of paper that's been given significance, right? Oh, More right. significance than if I were to take out a piece of paper and write down dollar bill, there's no significance to that because we can't spend it. 
because there's no social there's no social construct that's been made around yes. the power of that piece of paper. Yes, yes. These kinds of things, when we talk about these social constructs, these are the kinds of things that have been rooted in our brains, and our brains are consistently telling us a story. Our brains yep. are consistently telling us a story about the outside world that may or may not be true, but we know that it's true to us because in some form or fashion, it kept you safe. So when you went over to your cousin's house to play, it wasn't just the fact that you were going to go play with their toys. It wasn't just the fact you're going to go play with your cousins. It was the fact that this was an environment in which you felt safe. in, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's why that memory is so powerful for you. Yeah. So we write this book, put it out, and we were just hoping to sell maybe five, 10 copies. And it was just basically something we could give to our current clients as well as future clients right. as basically a calling card. Right. Right. Had no idea it was going to end up being an Amazon number one bestseller. Had wow. no idea that it was going to end up being an international bestseller. So very proud of that. But it's just so interesting to see so many of my grade school classmates who are like, oh, man, we knew you were going to be successful. We knew you were going to be. I'm like, you didn't even invite me to your birthday party. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but these memories are so crystal clear to me, but they don't remember it. Yeah. Because it was so traumatic for me because I just didn't fit in. Yeah. Right. So yeah. to your point, you know, we could sit back holding grudges all day long, but yeah. here's the thing. Their lives are still moving on, you know, for, <laughs> yeah. the, for the KKK. Let, let's be real for the KKK. I could sit back all day long talking bad about the Ku Klux Klan for what they did to my family. But, you know, they don't remember me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were too busy building crosses to burn and protest with somebody else. They don't remember yeah. me. Yeah. And I can continue playing that same theme in my head of, oh, people out to get me, people are out to get me. But mm. what does that do for me? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And I could talk all day long about my problems, Easy. but my problems just have a different, you know, there's just a different word base, but it still comes back to problems that everybody mm. else has. Could I ask a, a different question? Because uh, I mean, th this this line of question, we I think we could keep going down this road, and there's there there's so many different aspects. Actually, maybe I should just throw this out. Sure. And now, for me, growing up, there was something else that was interesting to me because I watched as uh, well. There was not a whole lot of movement with regards to. Um, racial equality, these kind of things. And then we got mm -hmm. to a point where we started to see more of it. And, and then I remember uh public enemy and NWA, <laughs> the, you know, sure, sure. just speaking my mind. And, um, but one of the things that was interesting to me was when we started with some of the gender movements and mm -hmm. these things started coming up. And I remember there being an, uh, an alignment with, uh, with the, with the racial movements. And I, and I remember thinking, you haven't gone through what I, we've gone through. There's no place for us to hide. There's no place. Like we can't, uh, I walk down the street and, and I'm a target. Yeah. Uh, you, you walk down the street, unless you open your mouth and you start sharing it from the rooftops, you know, no one's going to target you. And, uh, and I remember kind of being biased about that um, at the time. And I've and I wondered, is this as as the movement started working together? I was like, is this really growth, or is this just uh, you know, hey, we're we're joining together to for political uh, benefits? Mm -hmm. um, can you say anything about about those topics? Because I I know that there's there's always this debate of, hey, this is not the same as what we go through. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you a couple clarifying questions? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Hit hit me. Um, now, are we talking, so you started out, are you talking in terms of the push for equality for women? Are you, uh, like, what No, I, I, I mean, um, more in terms of uh, gender identities, uh, sexual identities. Oh, these, gotcha. You know, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, here's what I'll say to that. And this is yeah. just, this is just my, my way of thinking. And because I think it doesn't make it gospel for anybody else beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Oppression to one is oppression to all. Mm -hmm. And especially here, you know, when we talk about the LGBTQ plus community, yeah. when we talk about 
really any marginalized group of people. Historically, we can make the argument that they haven't had it as hard as us. Okay, right? yes. Historically, yeah. we can make that argument. Yeah. But what I will say is I've met enough people who are part of the LGBTQ plus community to know that although they can walk down the street and let's say in the case of someone who from all intent purposes identifies as a straight white male, mm -hmm. right? Who can walk down the street with a sense of the privilege that comes with that, who can walk down the street with a sense of, you know, being at the hierarchy, at the top of the hierarchy. The hell that these folks live in having to hide who they are, mm -hmm. having to be like when I was talking about being socially aware of cues in order to protect myself. Yeah. My handicapping condition in the minds of the people who were doing these things to me was the fact that I was black. That's my handicapping condition. Yeah. Right. And it was apparent. It was apparent for you being Indian, walking into your school, walking down the street. And look, being Indian in America is tough business. And I can't speak to Canada. I can only speak to here just in terms of the sheer amount of vitriol directed, especially after 9-11. Yeah. I, right. I wouldn't I wouldn't come down to the States after 9-11. I was like, nope, not doing it. Not doing it. Brother, I mean, I was at the University of Illinois at the time and working on my um, my graduate degree. And I will never forget. It was the only time where I walked down the street for about a solid week where I walked down the street and no one did a double take looking at me. But they always did a double take at the Middle Eastern. Yeah. Right. The Middle Eastern students yeah. or, you know, anybody who they uh, believe to be. Our enemy. Yeah. And when I say yeah. our enemy, I'm talking about America's enemy. Yeah. Right. It was disgusting. Yeah. But getting back to to the point that you brought up yeah. is if I have to live, if I have to continue to hear that I'm free to be who I am, but I'm also being told on the other side that I have to hide who I am. That in itself is his own sense of hell. Yeah. So Absolutely. now all of a sudden they become very guarded in terms of what they say. Yeah. They become very guarded in terms of what they do. Yeah. Right. I mean, look at athletes that have come out of the closet. Right. You know, after their playing, a lot of times after their playing careers are over and they're in tears talking about the agony that they experienced as a result yeah. of knowing that they were really part of this. Marginalized community, but trying to pretend like they were part of the majority community. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're from a historical standpoint in terms of what history has recorded. They don't have the same origins that we have, but from, I think from an emotional standpoint, they share many of the pains that we share. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to some degree, um, there's even, there's even more in the sense that they would have to actually announce it. Right? Like there was, there is nowhere for us to hide. It's out right. there. <laughs> and so there's, there's you no you came out of the closet the moment you were born. Right? Right. I mean, let's just be real. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. There's no, there's no mind game about coming out, coming out about my skin color. Right. So yeah. I, absolutely. I, I agree. I, re I really appreciate uh, what you just shared there. Um, and, and if, if I can move into something else, because you, you had, I, I'd heard one of your, uh, when you're speaking and you said that uh, you were talking about, the rich are getting richer, poor are getting poorer. You're talking about the, the, uh, that canyon that is being created that's happening. Right. Why, why is it actually, you talked about the have and the have nots. Mm -hmm. And, and so the question I, I would say is why, why do we have to, everyone, everyone says that, oh, you know, oh, the, it's getting wider, the have and the have nots. But no one ever says or talks about why do we have to care about? there being a divide between the have and the have nots. Isn't that like saying, well, there are people that are willing to do and there are people that aren't, I don't, I don't know. Why do we, why do we, why should we care about that divide? Oh man. So I forgot to tell you that I am a social worker by training, right? <laughs> which means that I have, a, God bless you, which means Thank that I, I have um, one of the uh, uh, biggest bleeding hearts on the face of the planet. Right. Okay. So here's my belief. And again, 
let me preface this because I believe it doesn't make it gospel for everybody. But yeah. I know that I've seen, I know what I've seen in my life. What impacts you impacts me. Mm-hmm. What impacts me impacts you. And when we talk about the widening gap between the haves and the have nots, I'm blessed to be a half. I'm blessed to be in, in that, in yeah. that, in that quadrant. Yeah. But I also know what it's like to be part of the have nots. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And when you're broke, when you can barely afford gas, when you can barely afford groceries, when you're not quite sure where, how, and where you're going to make your next rent payment, mm-hmm. you can be millions of dollars removed from that, but you never forget that. <laughs> right? Yeah. You never forget it. Yeah. My belief is that. We live in a day and age in which there should not be hungry people. Mm. My belief is that we live in a day and age in which children should not have to, you know, when COVID hit and, you know, the school systems here went to distance learning where now everything was virtual. There is an an inherent assumption that comes with being able to switch to virtual, virtual schooling, that everybody has Wi-Fi access. Mm -hmm that every child has computers, that every child has food to eat, breakfast, mm-hmm. lunch, and dinner, and the occasional snack in between. There's the implied assumption that parents or, or a parent is going to be able to you know, act as a supplement to the teachings that the student is learning from his or her mm-hmm. teacher on Zoom. That's just not true of everybody's circumstance. And so in terms of when we look at American exceptionalism, American exceptionalism says, well, all you have to do is just pull yourself up by your boots, lace your bootstraps, get out there and work. Yeah. Well, with all due respect, that's also not accounting for all of the inherent inequalities that exist within our system of quote unquote exceptionalism. Yeah. Um, My belief is that I have an obligation. I don't care. Look, my hope is that when I talk to you 20 years from now, that I'm high-fiving you because I have $100 million in the bank. That's yeah. my hope. If I get there, man, Ooh. I did it. If I don't get there, you know what? I, <laughs> you shoot for the moon, you end up with amongst the stars, right? Yes. But also understand from my perspective that I still owe a debt to people who don't have what I have. Mm-hmm. Yep. I had two parents who, you know, middle-class upbringing middle class to you know shortly before they retired had grown to upper middle class so i have parents who did really well for themselves but i also had parents because you never forget where you come from not just you but also the people who raised you yeah my father was you know grew up as a cotton farmer and attended tennessee state university um then got a master's at fisk university and then got a phd in educational psychology my father's a very accomplished man, you know, nationally renowned educator before he retired in 2004. My mother was a nurse who then became, you know, on a whim, decided to get into the field of education and became incredibly well known for her work in early childhood education. I had two parents who were strivers. That was my role. They were my role models. They are part of the reason why I strive to do the things that I strive to do. Mm. But not everybody has it like I have it. Yeah. So how do I then look at people who don't have that and say, well, you're just lazy because you don't have anything? Well, you don't know the conditions that created their mentality. And they can attend a Tony Robbins seminar. They can attend, you know, all of these great motivational speakers who are going to tell them all those things. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And for three days, they feel great. And then they go home. Yeah. (laughs) So that's, you know, that's just a long winded way of saying that that's why I care. Yeah, I care because if people who are in a position to care, people who are in a position to do something, don't do something. Why not? Yeah. Why, <laughs> why not? You have a responsibility to, yeah. much, to, to whom much is given, much is required. Yes, absolutely. You, you know, it's interesting. I have... Uh... For anyone, uh, so I have uh, investors, I have a group of investors, and we we function primarily in real estate. Mm-hmm. And I always, before I take on a new investor, I always have two questions for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, to most people, it, they sound kind of funny, but 
my first my first question is um or my yeah my first rule is that we're going to make money in this thing and if you're not sure if there's money in real estate that's okay come back when you are sure so mm -hmm. rule number one we're gonna we're gonna make money in real estate and uh and then because i'm i'm not going to try to convince anyone to do it right. and then my my second one is um and we're going to give back mm -hmm. because quite frankly uh, i have worked with people that just care about being a have and making mm -hmm. money. And um, quite frankly, I just don't want to be around those people. Yes. Yes. It's up. Yes. You know, so if, mm -hmm. so for instance, every year we typically try to uh, support something last year with COVID and all the uncertainty. And you touched on this about families that maybe aren't even able to support their children in this online learning. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things, and a shout out to uh, Dondre Homer of uh, Five Nuggets, he put together, young man put together um, hiring tutors to be able to tutor uh, underprivileged mm. kids That's awesome. uh, online. And, you know, and they, and so we raised some money for that so you could hire them. And, uh, and then they would give attention to these kids that, you know, many people are like, oh, well, you know, the, the kids can just do it online, then they don't have it. Yeah. But if they don't know, then who are they supposed to ask? Right. right? And so at least they have a, a resource. Right. And and many times they don't even know. I didn't even know to ask. Mm -hmm. Right. So unless someone un unless someone says, hey, uh, would you like some help with this or what? It, ask some of those questions, you may not even know. And and I reference that to back to, oh gosh, what was it, grade four, I think. And my teacher at the time, um, and this is this is a time gone by. Um, he he looked at some of the kids that were having they had really tough situations. And he invited got a hold of one of the other parents who had a cottage. And he got them, and then he knew. On top of them being troublemakers, it was like, well, I know, I know Neil has got a rough go at home with his dad, so mm -hmm. I'm going to bring him as well. He may not be a troublemaker, but I know he's got trouble at home. So, right. he, so four of us went to this. Uh, four kids from the class went to another parent's cottage, and we had this amazing time. And I have this amazing memory of being able to go there feel what it was like to have a cottage. But if he had never asked me, I never would have, you know, hey, I'd like to go to a cottage. Hey, I'd like to do. He, of his own volition, looked and saw the need. He coordinated yes. all of that. And of course, now we live in a society where, hey, if a teacher was trying to get four young boys to uh, exactly. go to a cottage, it, it never happened. But right. at that point in time, it was the most amazing experience ever. We got to sleep in a loft, go jump in the water, yes. you know, all that kind of stuff. But it, but what I want to say about that is what you're pointing out is it is incumbent on us to look out for those. And, and either, I think either you subscribe to that or you don't. And if you don't, that's your choice. But, um, you know, I, I think we're not going to stand for that. And think about how lucky, how blessed and life affirming it was for you to be invited to that oh. cottage. Yeah. To have somebody to pour into you first yeah. by asking you, by recognizing you in a way that you hadn't been recognized prior to that. Yeah. And it didn't matter that your calling card was that you came from a rough background with an alcoholic father. Yeah. It just mattered that somebody saw you and wanted you to be part of something. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So Preach about, this. Think about the number of kids. Think about the number of people, because look, we're never too old to be inspired. Yeah. There are people who I've met who I'm 47 years old. There are people who I've met in their late fifties, early sixties, who've come up to me after, let's say a public speaking event, or just by the simple fact that I was working in engagement and happened to recognize them and made a recommendation to their boss that they'd be promoted. 
who will come to me and say, nobody ever took a chance on me until you. But that's what I'm talking about yeah. is, look, man, Whew. We are we are so we're so fortunate. Yeah. And look, I'm a black man in society, and I guess I'm supposed to tell everybody, oh man, life sucks. It's tough. I'm black. I'm this. Man, please. <laughs> I've been given so much in my life. So mm. much love from parents, so much love from great friends, so much love from a wonderful wife, so much love from aspects of a society who there were people who saw me and believed in me because I can talk all day long about what it's like growing up in an all white environment, how tough it was. But I can also talk to people like Mrs. Simmons, who white woman, who was my math tutor. And she knew I sucked at math, but she believed in me. And always, every single time I saw her, she said, you're going to be a superstar one day. I'm going to read about you one day. I didn't believe that. I was just hoping that somebody would say hello to me. And here's this yeah. woman breathing life into me every single time I saw her. She was tough on me when I needed her to be tough. She was loving to me when I needed her to be loving to me. But she was always consistent. And to this day, I tell anybody and everybody, when they ask me who inspired me, I have a list of people who have breathed life into me that I can pull on, right? That I can yeah. pull on when I'm suffering, when I'm struggling. Yeah. So if those folks have been that to me, how do I look, Neil, if I'm not that to other people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like I'm slapping them in the face, brother. I right. can't do that. Right. Shout out to Miss Simmons. Hey, much <laughs> love, Miss Simmons. <laughs> That's, uh, that is beautiful. Um, I'd love to ask something else that you as you mentioned about covid and sure. and because of because of you dealing with diversity dealing with labor relations dealing with looking at a larger picture i, I want to ask you if you've ever thought or wondered about something that i've been i've been watching over the last over this period of covid mm -hmm. where um where we've seen everything from uh We've seen everything from lockdowns mm -hmm. to, um, uh, you know, George Floyd mm -hmm. to, you know, gender equality issues coming up to now here in Canada. We've also had uh, we've seen uh, things of for indigenous people and mm -hmm. and I'm seeing so many divisive topics being thrown at us from the media anti-vaxxers vaccination you know you name it it seems like i've i always wonder is there some sort of campaign going on to just show all of the uh divisiveness amongst people and i'm kind of wondering why does why is all of this happening simultaneously is it happening simultaneously maybe it just didn't get any media attention before, but now it's all getting media attention because they don't know what else to report on. I, I don't know. Do you do you have any thoughts or context about why we're seeing so? I mean, oh my goodness! Then there's Donald Trump, right? Uh, you could talk about. I'm sorry. You, you know, <laughs> I got right, chills when you said that. Yeah, but yeah. You, you know what I mean, right? And for yeah. instance, here here in Canada, we are about to uh, go into an election, and and ev and people are like. Hang on a second. You didn't. You don't need to call an election right now. But he decided to call an election. Um, meanwhile, he could have gone another couple of years, but he feels the need to call an election right now, in the middle of COVID, right Justin after the summertime. Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, yeah. Trudeau. Okay. And, and and so people are, you know, yet another divisive topic, and uh, and so, but it does seem odd to me the number of these divisive topics that have been coming up. And and sometimes I wonder, is the media trying to divide us? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I don't know that I can say that the media is trying to divide us as much as look, negativity sells. Yeah. <laughs> and because yeah. let's be real, if if positivity sold, then 
we would breed more stories about the little boy who picked up a, a, a dog that he found on yeah. his way home. Right? True, true story. True story. Yes. When I used to live uh, out east in Nova Scotia, uh, right. the eastern part of uh, Canada, um, they had a section on the news every day where they bring up some uh, a kid's artwork and they'd show it on the news. That's and great. Shout out to so-and-so, the great piece of artwork about, you know, being able to play outside. Great yes. job. And I, I was like, oh, my goodness, when I first moved out there and I saw that. So anyways, shout out to all the Nova Scotians. One of my closest one of my closest friends from undergrad, um, Omar Carterville, lives on Nova Scotia. So big shout out to Omar. Um, love that cat. Just in incredible, incredible dude. Incredible family. Here's what here's what I believe. Yeah. I don't know that I can ever label the media as being a negativity engine. But I do know that one thing that has changed the dynamic of every single game that you mentioned, because I feel like they're all a bunch of games, right? Is the internet. Mm -hmm. Look, when you, George, I'm gonna go back to the George Floyd moment, okay? Yeah. The George Floyd moment happens in, was it May? I don't remember the exact date. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's weird how COVID has kind of messed with, with my sense yeah. of time. Right. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. It's amazing. But let's say the George Floyd moment happens in May and it happened to occur in Minneapolis. Three days later, you see Black Lives Matter movements all throughout the world. Yeah. And I'm not saying black people holding up signs saying black Black Lives Matter. I'm saying people of Middle Eastern descent. I'm saying people of Asian descent. I'm saying people who are Latino. descent. I mean, just go on down the line. There was this groundswell of support that was experienced throughout the nation. Now, that didn't happen because CNN happened to report on it. That happened because Twitter reported on it. That happened because people on Instagram go on down the line of, you know, the social media, um, social media tools that people utilize in order to gather their news. Mm -hmm. I think. Look, what. One person might consider it to be a divisive topic. Another person might be considered to be a, a topic of liberation. Because now people, what we're seeing more than anything else, Neil, is people want to be heard. Mm. And you can't, on one hand, applaud Kim Kardashian, the Kardashian family, for, for monetizing their brand, right? Their personalities, because I'm not quite sure what they've given the society other than the ability to take effective selfies. I don't know. You might be able to tell me more, but I don't know. I'm just saying based on somebody who's 47 years of age, who's not in that demographic, they've just given some amazing selfies, okay? And have turned it into a multi-million dollar business. In some cases, yeah. billion dollar. Yeah. People have become very comfortable sharing their stories online. Mm -hmm. And in the process of sharing their stories online, now they're starting to share themselves. If you embolden me in such a way, and when I say embolden me, I mean, if you say something in such a way and you speak to my pain mm. and I identify with you, why wouldn't I go out there and speak on my pain? Yeah. And then I yeah. embolden somebody else. And then I embolden somebody else and I embolden somebody else. I think what we're seeing and we're just talking globally. Yeah. We're seeing a shift. A cultural shift in which people are not as comfortable living under the old rule of law. Yeah. And, you know, you and I spoke about the demographic of your podcast. <clears throat> Excuse me. What I will say to, what I will say to the younger generation is they get crapped on so much for being lazy, you know, being, you yeah. know, tech heads for being more concerned with taking a selfie than they're concerned about doing whatever else. To me, they're the greatest generation. And I'll mm -hmm. tell you why they're the greatest generation. They're the greatest generation because they're causing people that are in our forties and fifties to take a look at life and ask the bigger question is what I taught actually true. Yeah. Right. To me, the mark of someone who's successful is their ability to push on boundaries to push on barriers and to push it further and further and further and further with the hope that I'm not just doing this because I want to be an anarchist. Yes. I'm doing this because <clears throat> you all have brought me up to believe you all have taught me to follow my dreams. 
You all have taught me to be better than I could ever be. How many cliches do we have as parents, right? I'm a walking cliche. I was born in the 70s, brother. I'm a walking cliche. I look at my wife, if I'm trying to motivate her, I'm like, go for it, right? Just do it. <laughs> Where did I get this stuff from, right? But if this is what we're putting in the minds of our kids from an early age, how are we then going to be surprised when they start to actually believe it? Mm-hmm. To believe that they can be the change because that's what we told them they can be. Right. We're hypocrites if we deny them that. Whew. Whew. That's some crazy stuff. We didn't, we didn't even, we haven't, we're, we basically reached time and we haven't even, we didn't even get into labor relations. We, we didn't get into any of that. I'm, I'm so sorry. That's okay, man. Um, I, I love this conversation. You're an awesome dude, man. I love this wow. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that that is so amazing. And what you just brought me present to, I, I want to share this. What you just brought me present to is because the 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 media really, the news out there, they really are just showing what they think people want to see and what people are going to gravitate to. And, and you're right in terms of these things were already there. People were already speaking about these things. They just didn't get any airtime prior to. Mm-hmm. And, and now because of that groundswell, we're seeing it at the, at the highest levels of media mm-hmm. or the, the most popular size, whatever. Um, you know, and, uh, and so what we're really seeing is an awareness that's coming out from all of these different places. And, I really appreciate that because that that really does create hope to see the younger yes. generation stepping out and creating what they want to create saying hey because we all know when you're young is when you you know the reason I loved public enemy and NWA mm-hmm. was because they were speaking out at a time that no one else was speaking out yeah. and uh, they were doing it through rap right and um you know, uh, public enemy said nine one one is a joke, and uh, you weren't allowed to play that song. And but it was true; there were neighborhoods that they that they wouldn't bother going into. Right. Right. Um, I remember a friend of mine in the Bronx who literally said, "Yeah, the police had come. They'd come to the top of the street and they'd turn on their lights and they'd wait there while there's shootings and everything going on. They'd wait there until." Uh, you know, it had stopped and then they would come in and actually uh, do something to, well, basically pick up whatever bodies were left kind of deal. And so here we are now watching this and that that is really inspiring. I, I got to really thank you for that. That is something that I can take from here and really think about and uh, appreciate because I've got four, four young kids. Uh, they're all teenagers right now okay. and I'm watching them, this all happening. Um, and and you're right there has been judgment that i've cast in different areas and what you're sharing here is another way for me to be able to celebrate them rather than cast judgment so i really uh, appreciate you coming on the show and sharing that with me and hey, with you. everybody today thank you thank you for giving me the opportunity it's a lot of fun yeah so um okay now with regards to diversity labor relations Mm-hmm. Um, I, you, you know, where, where can people find more of that and just where can they find more of you? Awesome. So you can hit me on Twitter at labor diversity, um, LinkedIn. I'm always on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. Jason Greer, as well as on Instagram at Jason Greer. So I'm very present on social media. Talk to me and I won't charge you. I know I'm a consultant, but if you hit me up with a message, you got questions, just talk to me. I love yeah. just dialogue. Look, man. We have a responsibility to make this world a better place. Yeah, And absolutely. that looks like if we're going to cure the ills of society, if we're going to make our workforce better, our work environments better, it starts with conversation. Yeah, yeah. What, what's next for you? A lot. Um, so we have a new book that'll be coming out next year around um, mm-hmm. more in terms of, and I don't have an exact title for it yet, uh, but more in terms of uh, diversity management. Yeah. Um, another book coming out in terms of employee relations based on the fact that 
you know, there's this global issue of we have a labor shortage. And I think that we're looking at labor from the wrong perspective. That is not that people don't want to work. In some cases, they don't. But the majority, the statistics don't bear out that people don't want to go to work. They just don't want to be abused at work. And so mm-hmm. now there's, look, you, you I, can, I've actually heard people don't want to leave, don't want to leave bad jobs. They want to leave bad management. Oh, it's exactly the same reason why people unionize is mm-hmm. that no one wants to join a union. They just don't want to work for that bad manager anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, for as doom and gloom as so many people are about what is currently going on in our society, as well as what potentially is going to go on in our society. Yeah. It's the beautiful mark of being an outsider, the perpetual outsider, because I tend to look at life a little bit differently. I don't see problems. I just see opportunities. Right. With those opportunities come a whole swell of solutions that can be found by having that conversation. So the hope that we have with our book, um, our next two books that are coming out, is that we can be conversation starters. We don't pretend to have all the solutions, but we do at least acknowledge that we have a lot of questions to ask. Yeah. Wow. Jason, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for all that you shared, all that you created. And, uh, you know, guys, please go check out Jason. Uh, Go follow him and and like his stuff. There's a lot of material that he has out there um, as a speaker, um, as an author, and uh, he... uh, He's definitely being the change that he wants to see in this world. And uh, Jason, uh, thank you so much again for being on the show. Neil, it's a pleasure, man. You have an awesome podcast. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. All right, guys. Thank you. We'll see you guys again next time here on Leadership to Wealth.